All right. Good morning. I hope you're all primed and ready to go. All right. All right. Well, you talk about God's strange providences. I just, the last half hour, spent time with three girls that I grew up with in Wisconsin who I'd posted and said I was going to be here. And uh, one of them said, hey, can we get together tomorrow? This is yesterday. And I said, yeah. And I said, do you live here in Granbury? No, we're just here visiting an aunt and, and a cousin. So, yeah, that's really something. I haven't seen those girls probably in close to 50 years now. So, you know, half hour. Hey, what's happened to you in the last 50 years, right? <laughs> All right, let's pray, shall we? Father, we're thankful again that Your Word is sufficient. It gives us all that we need in order to live a life that's pleasing to You and pleasing to man. We're thankful for Your Spirit that opens that Word to us and shows us where we need to change in light of it. Help us now, Lord, to understand this topic, um, Father, so that we can be better equipped to serve You and serve others. So help us as we think through this now, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we want to talk about anthropology today. Uh, Now, anthropology is the doctrine of man. In the old days when you went to seminary, we were were told there are ten heads of doctrine, you know, uh, theology proper, the theology of God, um, Christology, pneumatology, doctrine of the Spirit, Harmartiology, doctrine of sin, soteriology, doctrine of salvation, and so forth. Anthropology was one of those. It's the doctrine of man. Now, don't confuse the theological term with the social science term, which is studying man and his cultures and, and relationships of human beings in those cultures. Anthropology, theologically speaking, tells us who and what man is. It tells us what is his composition, what motivates him, what does his, how does his environment affect him? What makes him tick? What is a properly functioning human being? And every system works with an anthropology, with a doctrine of man. Biblical counselors operate with an anthropology drawn from the scriptures. But secular theorists and practitioners also deal with anthropology. Even if they've never opened a, a Bible, they're dealing with an anthropology. Even though they, they never pick up that Bible, they each, each system has a particular doctrine of man. Every theorist and practitioner, no matter how biblical or unbiblical he is, operates with some kind of functional anthropology. Every system, every counselor has formulated answers to the questions What's the composition of man? What motivates him? How does his environment affect him? Who and what is man? And why does he do the things he does? What must I do to help people become properly functioning human beings? So you may never pick up a Bible, but you're always operating with a functional anthropology. Whether you're a biblical or a secular theorist, You, everyone has an anthropology. And here's the deal. Counseling theory and practice inevitably grows up from that anthropology. Whatever your anthropology is, it's going to determine your counseling theory and practice. All right? 
So, even the secular theorists work with an anthropology, and you can tell what that anthropology is as you look at their theory and methodology. Okay? Now, let's see how that works. And what I want to do here today is to show you first a secular um, theorist and then an integrationist, all right, and show you the anthropology in that, and then we move on to a, a short biblical anthropology, okay? So, the theory and practice of a secular psychological, secular psychological systems grow out of their deficient anthropology. Now, here's what I think is a key concept. All secular systems try to understand man by observation without any reference to revelation from God. We talked about this last night. Now, by the way, I hope you didn't get the idea that I'm anti-science. I'm not. All I was trying, the only point I was trying to make is there's no such thing as a neutral science. Everybody operates with biases, okay? Um, with presuppositions. Listen, my son, if I can just illustrate this for a moment, my son is the biology teacher in our high school. And um, so he comes to the unit where he has to teach on evolution, right? And my son's a good, solid Christian guy and also happens to be the wrestling coach, but I'm not sure which is most important. Anyway, um, when he gets the evolution thing, he says, now you, you guys all know that these people who believe in intelligent design are biased and they're just not looking at the facts and the students are going, yeah, yeah. And he goes, well, I, actually, that's not the case. <laughs> and he talks about how you look at the same data but arrive at different conclusions because of the presuppositions you've already committed yourself to. He really loves rattling those kids' cages. You know what he did one time? After doing that, he said, hey, I want you to write a paragraph for me. What is the purpose of man? Not what is the purpose. Why do you exist? Why do you exist? Okay? I want you to write a paragraph on that. And so they handed it in. So here's the, here's uh, Emma, who's the daughter of uh, a local Presbyterian pastor. And she writes, right, man exists to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Right? <laughs> And then there's this other boy who writes, I'm a biological entity here to reproduce. And, and I know that Levi would say, okay, you're saying that because you've already committed yourself to certain presuppositions and how you're going to interpret the data. But be that as it may, I'm not anti-science, but what I want you to see is the scientific mindset has told us that you arrive at truth through observation. And keep the God talk out, right? Don't bring that in. That just colors everything. Well, yeah, it does. But, but so the idea is observation. Okay? And the reason why you observe is because you observe those things that are measurable. Okay? That's what science is. You observe things that are measurable. Alright, so the secular theorist tries to understand man by observation. Okay, without any reference to God's revelation. So I'm going to give you an example. Um, Albert Ellis and his rational emotive therapy, which, if I'm not mistaken, is the precursor to what's today called cognitive behavioral theory, CBT. I think he's the granddaddy of it, I think. But um, it, it sounds a lot like CBT. For Ellis, the key to helping people is helping them uncover their individual 
set of beliefs, their attitudes, their expectations, personal rules that frequently lead to emotional distress. And so then it helps the counselor reformulate his dysfunctional beliefs into more sensible, realistic, and helpful ones. Now, for this kind of therapy, then, rational beliefs are those which help people live satisfying, healthy, and fulfilled lives. I'm quoting him now. That the rational beliefs are those which help people live satisfying, healthy, and fulfilled lives. Now, Ellis was strongly influenced by Stoic philosophers, okay? Such as uh, Marcus Aurelius and Spinoza, and even Bertrand Russell, a, a philosopher of, um, of the mid-20th century. For Ellis, he does not believe in God. That's not a reality to be dealt with. He writes that he does not believe in sin, saying the concept of sin is the direct and indirect cause of virtually all neurotic disturbances. The sooner psychotherapists forthrightly begin to attack it, the better their patients will be. And so he's operating then, um, essentially saying, you've got to replace that with certain other beliefs. All right, if you're going to have a satisfying, healthy, fulfilled life. Now, Ellis and rational emotive therapy operates with a doctrine of man. It operates with an anthropology, right? As you read them, and again, okay, unlike biblical counselors, you're not going to find a chapter in their books about, here's the anthropology I'm working from, all right? You read them and you determine it by what he's saying. And you draw, you connect the dots. So what I'm saying here is, here's his anthropology. Number one, it conceives man not as a moral being. It doesn't see him as a moral being. A being subject to God and his law. A being struggling against or falling to sin. Rather, human beings are rational beings operating with reason. But for him, it's reason unaffected by sin. Now, if you believe in the doctrine of total depravity, you're not believing that man is totally evil, but you're believing that man in every aspect of his being has been corrupted by sin. And that includes his thinking abilities. Remember what we saw last night. We saw that uh, man holds down the truth. He suppresses the truth. And so he becomes futile in his understanding. His reasoning has been corrupted by sin. But uh, rational emotive therapy does not see that, okay? Your, your rationality is essentially uh, what it should be. What's the standard of rationality? Only that which helps people live satisfying, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And so man is the standard since there is no external moral standard by which he must operate. So there's not a, there's no must, there's no shoulds, there's no oughts, all right? What's a satisfying life for you? That's what we try to achieve by means of this therapy. Ellis says that his philosophy has some belief in the innate capacity of human beings to help themselves. What does that tell me? He doesn't see human beings as in need of redemption. They have an innate ability. They don't need an outside redeemer. Okay? That's that's evident. Um, he agrees with the Stoic philosopher Epictetus who wrote, the chief concern of a wise 
and a good man is his own reason. Now, you can see then that even the secular counselor operates with a particular anthropology. He has a doctrine of man. He has an understanding of man. He's operating, he's functioning with some sort of an understanding of man, a doctrine of of man, an anthropology if we want to call it that. And then that anthropology determines the method of change. It's going to determine the method of change. And so the counselor helps the person identify what he calls unreasonable self-talk. For example, I can manage life only if I avoid rather than face difficulties and responsibilities. So that may be your functional belief. The the, uh, therapist then comes along and helps you understand and replace that with the only way to handle life is to face up to those problems and your responsibilities. And so the counselor teaches the counselee more rational ways of thinking, more efficient and logical thoughts. But I ask the question, is that all there is to a human being? You know, are we just a brain on legs? Um, Is that all there is? Has Ellis properly interpreted what man is and how he can change? And I would say, no, that's not the case because he's left out the categories that give us true explanations of the way people are revealed by God. And so, again, uh, secular theorists operate with a deficient anthropology. They have one, but it's deficient, and thus it leads them in directions that are contrary to where we would go um, as those who believe in revelation from God in the Scriptures. Now, The theory and practice of integrationist systems grow out of a deficient and corrupt anthropology. Now, do you know what I mean when I use the term integrationist? (laughs) We're not talking about racial integration here. We're talking about what you do with your knowledge. Here's the foundational principle of the integrationists. By the way, I'd put myself in this camp years ago. When I came out of college, this is where I was. Okay, out of Christian college, this is where I was. The foundational principle is scripture gives us some insights, but we have to go to other sources of truth for a complete understanding of man. All right, that's the basic foundational principle. Scripture gives us some insights. They will even say, these are integrationists are Christians now, who would say scripture gives us the most basic right? Uh, Important insights to man, but we need more than that in order, more than that from other sources of truth in order for us to come up with a complete understanding of man. So in practice, the scripture is insufficient to provide a complete functioning anthropology. And they assert that we can understand man and how he operates as we combine discovered truth from general revelation with revealed truth from Scripture. So here's their view. Here's general general revelation. This is what they call general revelation. This is where we find discovered truth plus insights from special revelation. Revealed truth. 
Okay? So this plus that gives you what you need to know in order to help people, in order to have a complete understanding. Now, in practice, Scripture acts then as a screen. Scripture acts as a screen so that these the things that someone might say they've discovered in general revelation, we know may be false because of what Scripture says, so we throw those ideas out. But Scripture acts as a screen by which some truth from here is true, right? It's true, and so it screens out the false from the true, okay? So an integrationist would certainly say, if someone discovers that man is basically good, we know that's wrong. So we're, you know, we're not going to take everything that that, that uh, secular theorist might say. And so then you add or you integrate the discovered truth of general revelation with the revealed truth of special revelation for the complete picture. Now again, that's what I was taught in my Christian college. Okay? You have these discovered truths from general revelation. Okay, so their their mantra is all truth is God's truth. That's right. 4 plus 4 equals 8 is God's truth. Right? There's nothing in the world. If it's true, it's from God, right? The fact that America won its independence in, in, uh, in the Revolutionary War, is that God's truth? Absolutely. Okay? So all truth is God's truth. All right? But this leads us down to, to some dangerous paths when you're not careful with what you're saying. And here's why. Here are the fatal flaws in this, in this system, okay? Here are the fatal flaws, All right, Now listen carefully. The integrationist operates with a different, a deficient anthropology because he operates with a misconception of general revelation. He's not defining general revelation correctly, okay? General revelation reveals the glory of God. So that men are without excuse. Romans 1. All of that truth out there serves a purpose. And that purpose is there is this God of divine nature and power who deserves glory. It reveals the glory of God. But it doesn't reveal truth about us in terms of normative truth, in terms of the oughts. Okay? It doesn't tell us that. It never, general revelation was never intended to do that. It was intended to show the glory of God. So creation can tell me how my hand operates, right? And that a powerful creator made it. But I can't figure out why that hand reaches out and chokes somebody without revelation from God. Right, so general revelation is this this is a marvelous creation and wow look at what God has done. Same with the human ever think about the human eye? You know, I think about the human eye and wonder how could anyone believe that this complex thing is a result of time plus chance? Right? Here's the human eye. I can look at it and study it and say, Wow, you see actually because nerves go from the eye to the brain, and that's that's how you see things. That's what seeing is. 
Alright? Is that God's truth? Absolutely that's God's truth. But what that truth does is to reveal the glory of the one who made that. But no one will be able to tell me why my eye wanders in lust. Okay? So, do you see what I'm saying? General revelation is to point us to God. It's not to point us to ourselves and discover truth about us. It never was intended to do that. And so that's where they're wrong from the very start. Their premise is wrong. General revelation is not things that I discover. General revelation, I discover things in general revelation, but it points me to God. It doesn't point me to me. It doesn't point me to um, why I do what I do. Okay? Here's another problem. The integrationist operates with a deficient anthropology because he seeks to understand man more by observation than by revelation. Now, he's not substituting observation for revelation, but he depends more on observation than he does revelation. Now, I want to give you a good example of that. Um, I'm going to read you a section from uh, a book called Inside Out by Larry Crabb. Larry Crabb was... a rather famous, rather influential integrationist um, counselor. Wrote a number of books, and he was very influential. Okay? Now, I want you to listen carefully. This comes from his book, Inside Out. All right? Now, listen carefully to this. Some time ago, my wife and I were on our way to our favorite pizza restaurant. In the back seat of the car was another couple, good friends, I was at the wheel, feeling quite competent in my ability not only to drive the car competently, but also to find the restaurant. I'd been there many times before. I approached 2nd Avenue, driving east on Glades Road. The restaurant was located a mile north on 2nd Avenue, requiring that I turn left on Glades. I therefore eased the car into the left-hand lane, stopped because the light was red, and pressed the left turn signal. After a few moments of waiting, the light turned green. Before I had a chance to put my plan into action, my wife said, take a left here, honey. Five simple words. Take a left here, honey. And I felt furious. I jerked my head toward her and snapped, I know, and stepped on the gas. Everything in me wanted to turn right, but my desire for pizza outweighed my desire for revenge, so I turned left. Words flooded my mind, begging for release through my mouth, expressions of something other than appreciation for her help. Because the other people in the car were seeing me for counseling, I chose not to share those words with my wife. <laughs> I felt angry, far more, far more so than my wife's apparent lack of confidence in my navigational skills seemed to justify. I could have honestly stated that I was deeply committed to my wife, but at that moment, The commitment seemed barren of emotional warmth. Under my capable direction, we drove down 2nd Avenue until we saw a huge, well-lit sign that announced pizza. Just as I prepared to turn, my wife pointed and said, Here it is! My rage doubled. Now listen to what he says. Why do I deeply desire... What? I'm sorry. What do I deeply desire that was not provided in that interaction? Perhaps an inward look could uncover a more fundamental flaw that, if corrected, could lead to better husbanding. A look directed at my desires makes it plain that I want to be respected. 
To say, I long for respect, does not put the matter too strongly. I long to know that someone sees something in me that's valuable, that my existence is important because I'm capable of making a difference. I like it when people take me seriously, when they follow up a comment I make with questions to probe what I meant and what I feel. It touches something deep within me when people still want to hear from me even after I make a stupid remark. I want to be treated with respect, not just when I do well, but also when I stumble. The longing is legitimate and must not be ignored. All right, now I want you to think carefully. Did that resonate with you? Sure it did. That resonates with me. It resonates with you. Because we have all experienced that. We've all experienced that kind of anger that comes because you don't respect me. All right? Now... Larry Crabb, to his credit, is a keen observer of people. And the reason why that resonates with you is because he has seen this in so many people. He knows it in his own life. He's a keen observer of people. And and so he puts it out there and it resonates because, yes, that's exactly how I feel. And I've met millions of people who feel the same. And so he says what? That longing for respect is legitimate. Okay? Because he's seen it everywhere. He's observed it. But here's the question. Are those longings legitimate? Are they legitimate? What happens to those legitimate longings when you put it up against God's command to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind? Now what happens to those quote-unquote legitimate Longings. Consider James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. It says this, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Typically, we will say, her. (laughs) Right? But James takes us in the entirely opposite direction. He says, Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your desires. Okay? Now, Larry Crabb says this longing for respect is legitimate. But what happens to that when I put it up against James 4 verses 1 through 3? Why is he angry at his wife? Because he's not getting something he wants. Right? And that's what causes the quarrel. And by the way, you might say, but respect isn't a sinful desire. Please note that when James says, you, here's what he's saying. You have fights and quarrels. Why? Because you want something and the other person's not giving it to you. Okay? So you fight and quarrel, you kill and you covet. Then what does he say? But you don't ask God. But when you do ask God, He's not going to give it to you because what you're doing is she needs to respect me. So what do you pray? Lord, help her to respect me. And God says, I'm not playing that game. Okay? And, and so, so even these are, these desires that battle within us, right? They're things we can pray about. That's what James is saying. They're actual things we can pray about. So is wanting respect a bad thing? No. In fact, the Bible says to his wife, you need to respect your husband. Right? Ephesians 5. 
All right, and here's what Larry Crabb says. When my wife seems not to respect my ability to accomplish a simple task, that deep part of me that longs to be regarded as adequate feels pain. Well, could it be that he has a desire, a lust for respect? A heart idolatry, an idol revolving around respect? Yes. So you see what I'm saying here is he's a keen observer, right? He is a keen observer of people, and it resonates with us because we've all felt that. But that's what's a priority for him, his observation. Everybody feels this way. It must be legitimate, right? That must be a legitimate longing. But then the Word of God comes along and says, even those things you can pray for, like respect, can become a desire that causes a quarrel. It's not legitimate, it is not legitimate, but he is depending more on observation than what? Revelation. You see? So the, the integrationist viewpoint is deficient because he... Op- Here's another reason. Because he operates with a, what I call... A, a, not what I call, I think someone else... I think it was Ed Welch who called it a dash anthropology. What do we mean by that? Integrationists, integrationists see people as psychological spiritual beings or relational, volitional spiritual beings you know the hyphen the hyphens a relational volitional spiritual being okay dash dash anthropology and so consequently each person has a spiritual part right has a spiritual part it's not the central part of life but a section of it and so they say You nuthetic guys see only the spiritual part of people. Well, yeah, because that's the control center. We're not relational, volitional, spiritual. We're, we are spiritual or we are, there's a part of us called the heart, the mind, the soul that directs everything that we do. So the methodology, what about the methodology of the integrationist? The methodology of the integrationist will grow out of his anthropology. Well, what is that anthropology? What is that methodology? It's never the same. This integrationist has this methodology. This one has another. This one has another. Their way of helping people are radically different. Now, why is that? Why is that? Because... It depends on which school they're integrating into their biblical um, viewpoint, right? So when you read Jim Dobson, by the way, when I mention people like Larry Crabb and Jim Dobson, I am not, please understand, I am not questioning their faith. I am not questioning their motives, okay? These are guys who really want to help people, but they were wrong, okay? So when you read Jim Dobson, you're going to get a good dose of behaviorism, okay? When you read Larry Crabb, you're going to get a good dose of Maslow and his hierarchy of needs. So when you ask what an integrationist methodology is, you're going to see that you'll have a variety of methodologies among integrationists because you have a variety of anthropologies depending on what outside system has influenced them. I'm indebted to Dave Paulison, who once made this point, and it really stuck with me. 
Never speak of psychology as something monolithic. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what psychology says. Don't talk that way. There are hundreds of psychologies out there. And they are, many of them, mutually exclusive. They, they don't agree with one another. There is not a monolithic psychology. So, can I say to you, don't talk about psychology says. Because which psychology? Maslow? Freud? Skinner? Ellis? Which? Okay? So there's several psychologies out there. Several. Hundreds. Um, and so what's the integrationist methodology? It depends on which psychology or which uh, view he's bought into. That is what basically determines his methodology. Okay? Again, Jay Adams has made the point that many counselors who are Christians ignore the primary source for anthropology. Scriptures have acres of facts concerning anthropology. And yet it is not uncommon to find lengthy theoretical discussions of human nature, personality, behavior by writers who are Christians who rely upon almost any other source than scriptures. Christian theorists and counselors who write tons and tons and tons of stuff on behavior and personality and stuff who just barely, barely use the scriptures. And what they typically do is use the scripture to illustrate what they're trying to say. So, for example, Larry Crabb, in order to illustrate that your longings are legitimate, goes to Psalm 42 and 43, where it talks about how a deer pants after these waters. Of course, he, he misses the entire point, the purpose of Psalms 42 and 43, where the psalmist is longing for God in the midst of terrible circumstances. Okay? Um, and Jay has said, it has been non-exegetically, non-theologically oriented counselors who have specialized in the systematic study of every other point of view but not the systematic understanding of God's word who have made this confusing. Okay? So there's the integrationist. Let's talk about a biblical anthropology. The theory and practice of biblical counseling should grow out of a biblical anthropology. Okay? Um. Let's look at a basic biblical anthropology. Okay, and, and I could we could go much, much deeper than this. But let's just kind of get a basic idea. Let's get the skeleton of a biblical anthropology. In your studies, you can fill it out even more. But let's get a basic idea. First of all, man can only be understood as man in relationship to God. Remember I talked last night about the God word referent? This is what I mean. That... You can only be understood as man in relationship to God. Leave God out, you're not going to have an understanding of man. Okay? If you've ever read Calvin's Institutes, Calvin starts out saying, you'll never understand man unless you understand God. Right? So, think of it this way. Is man the, is man, man the product of chance? 
or man the special creation of God? One or the other. Is man the product of chance or is he man uh, the special creation of God? Now, let's think about that. If, if man is the product of chance, do you think that's going to determine some, some of, it's going to determine your methodology? If man is nothing more than the highest biological entity, what's that going to do? Well, it's going to affect the way you help people. If man is nothing but a biological entity, without relationship to God, just a biological entity, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to medicate, right? He's just biology. That's all he is. Um, You're going to be a behaviorist. How do we get a dog to do what he's supposed to do, right? And so this has, right, implications for the way you counsel. Is it man the product of chance or man the special creation of God, okay? Is it, is he man the highest form of animal or man created in the image of God? Is he man alone in the universe or man who lives every moment in the presence of God? Which is he? Right? That's so important. You cannot understand man out of, without bringing God in. He's not man alone in the universe. He is man who lives every moment in the presence of God. So what's that going to be? The man who lives alone in the universe is going to lead you to a nihilistic approach to life. Purposeless. So you have methodologies that say, well, we got to create a purpose for you. Right? And even that is shaky. But if I am man who lives every moment in the presence of God, then I've got a purpose, don't I? It's to glorify Him. All right? So you see that if you leave God out of the picture, you cannot understand man accurately. All right? This has to be central to your way of thinking when it comes to anthropology. All right? Here's another point. Man is revelation dependent. That is to say, I do not know my place or purpose without revelation from God. And by the way, okay, let's, let's look at that, okay? Um, Rev- Genesis chapter 1. Someone please read for us Genesis 1, 27 through 30. Someone read that for us. Okay, now if someone doesn't jump in in five seconds... All right. All right, let's look at chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Someone read that. All right. Now notice that God does not leave man to discover his place, his meaning, or his function. 
in creation, but that God has to reveal that to man. In other words, what do you see in Genesis 1? God creates man and then says, here's your purpose. You are to subdue the earth, fill it. You are to rule over the earth. And um, these are the things you can eat, right? You know, you, you, you see there that original man was a vegetarian, don't you? Yeah, that's hard to stomach. <laughs> I'm trying to think if glory is to exceed Eden, I'm hoping it includes meat. But I'm not holding out for that. But I want you to see, you see his purpose. You see what he's supposed to do. In Genesis 2, you see what God tells him to do. And you also see God says, you see that tree right there? That's a death producer. And and so do not, you can eat of any other tree. You can eat of everything of all the fruit. But that one right there, leave that alone. Now, he couldn't have discovered that on his own. God, man could not have discovered on his own what his place and purpose was in the universe. He needed revelation from God. And note, this is before sin has entered. Even in his perfect state, he is dependent on revelation from God. How much more is that true with the corrupting nature of sin now? So you see, I'm going to say it again. All the so-called natural sciences and the soft or social sciences try to understand man and all of creation by observation without reference to revelation. And that just cuts against the grain of what the, what we are. We are revelation dependent creatures. We will never understand anything apart from revelation, the revelation of God. By the way, I'm going to throw this in. This is a freebie. It's not in my notes. When, when people talk about the soft sciences, I want to scream and say, let's just admit it. They're not sciences. So the psychologies out there are not sciences. They're just more philosophies about people. Okay? Now, is there some things that are legitimate? Absolutely. I remember Jay Adams in the very beginning of biblical counseling said, Do, are all psychiatrists and psychologists throw them all out no we can learn from them we can learn what happens with sleep deprivation we can psychologists can tell us there are different ways of learning all right thank you but don't tell me how to live because that's where you're you're not you're you're overstepping your bounds and and the fact that some people want to call these psychology science tells me that they don't know what the scientific method is right observation hypothesis test under the same conditions gets the same result. Well, how can you take a human being and have the absolute same conditions every time? I may not have got enough sleep last night. Is that going to affect the experiment? Yeah. My wife may have just told me she doesn't love me anymore. And I go in and take this test. Do you think that's going to affect it? So you call it science. It doesn't meet the criteria of science. Be that as it may. That's so much for that. Man is revelation dependent. Man is made in the image of God. That is the very definition of a human being. That's the very definition of a human being. If you're not in the image of God, then you're not a human being. This is what distinguishes us from animals. An image and likeness gives us the idea of a duplicate or one who resembles God. There exists a correspondence between us and God. 
Man is a social being, right? Why? If he's in the image of God. Because what? God's a social being, isn't he? Right. Um, man is a thinking being. Man's an emotional being. Man's a communicative being. How could that be? Did God need to create us in order to, for there to be communication? No. There was the Trinity. Um, God's a creative being. He creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. And man, in a certain way, resembles this. You know, you know what the second highest art form is? Baking and cooking. <laughs> you know why? Because people can take the same ingredients, the same ingredients, and produce all this incredible variety of food, right? Isn't that amazing? That's amazing to me. Um, by the way, this tells us that the pursuit of art and literature and all those things are legitimate human um, endeavors because they reflect God, right? And by the way, unbelievers, are they made in the image of God? Can they produce good pieces of art and do all? Yeah, sure they can because they're made in the image of God. We're working beings. You ever thought that thought? You know that work was present in creation before sin? It was work without toil. That's almost a thought. Yeah, it's almost a thought. Like, I can't comprehend that. But I think, you know, I think in eternity. Oh, man. Okay. If eternity is what appears to me to be a restoration or even in uh, going beyond what Eden was, we are going to spend eternity creating, working, doing all the things that human beings we're supposed to do from the beginning. We're not going to be sitting around in a boring existence strumming harps. We're going to be writing, creating, working, doing all kinds of things. That's going to be eternity. That makes eternity a whole lot more appealing. All right, here's the other thing we need to understand. The image of God has been marred and distorted. Now, the image image has not been eradicated. It has not been eliminated in the fall. If that were so, if the image of God was eradicated, then that would mean that we're not human beings anymore because the image of God is the very definition of human beings. But it has been marred. It has been distorted. Do you remember Silly Putty? Man, I can remember I wanted Silly Putty so bad as a little boy. You know why? Because once I got it, I went to the paper, the newspaper, went to the, you know, I'd find a picture of somebody in the newspaper and I'd press that and Silly Putty would have the image on it. And you could take that, that image and go, Wah! and really do something wild with that, with that image. Well, that's what's happened since sin entered the world. Uh, the image of God in us has been distorted. But it's fascinating to me to see what Colossians, for example, Colossians chapter 3. Notice what it says here. Colossians um, 3. Yes, 3.10. Read 9 and 10 for us. Yeah.
all right? And so in redemption, the marred, defaced image is being restored. It's being restored. Image is, is the distortion is starting to, uh, what's the word I want? It's starting to be mitigated. Uh, the distortion is now getting smaller. Uh, um, Ephesians 4 24, put on the new man which is created to be like God after true righteousness and holiness. Have you thought this thought? That part of the redemption that Jesus brought is to make us more human. Okay? That's what Colossians 3, 10 is telling us. One of the reasons for Jesus' work of redemption is to make us the kind of human beings that God intended. Isn't that amazing? Right? It's not just getting into heaven. It's making us more human. It's making us more human. Note this as well. Man is a heart-driven being. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart for out of it are the springs of life. Uh, Mark 7, where Jesus is interacting with the disciples and they said, boy, don't you know the Pharisees are mad at you because you don't do the ceremonial washings? And he says, what defiles a man does not come from outside, it comes from inside. Every sin you see on the outside has started from the inside. In fact, every good thing you see on the outside has started from the inside. It's from the heart. Remember that we that many integrationists say that man is a relational, volitional, spiritual being and that we only deal with the spiritual part of man? Well, we need to respond that the spiritual part of man is the central part and that everything else grows out of that. All right? And it's related to the heart. And the Bible provides rich, robust, and deep explanations of the dynamics of the heart. And it tells us that the heart is what drives us. Now, again, the heart is not observable, is it? And the only way to understand it is by means of revelation. So here's another thing we have to understand. If we're putting together this anthropology, man is a heart-driven being. Okay? All right, let me propose to you a basic biblical theory of counseling. I hope this is in your notes. Counseling deals with a creature in God's likeness who has been corrupted by sin, living in a corrupted environment, and who must be understood and changed by means of a transcendent revelation. That's my basic theory of counseling. If I believe that he is a creature in God's likeness, that means I'm going to approach him how? With respect. I'm not going to approach him like a dog. I'm going to approach him as an image bearer. I'm going to recognize he's been corrupted by sin. That the reason why he does what he does uh, against the will of God is because sin has corrupted him in his very being. I have six children and every one of them came out of the womb shaking their fist at God from the very moment they were born. That is, that's going to help me understand counseling. We live in a corrupted environment. We live in an environment that also has been corrupted by sin, that's going to turn against us, that's going to produce suffering. And he must be understood and changed by means of a transcendent revelation. Understood and then changed that way. It also provides for me then a basic biblical uh, methodology, which is 
counseling ministers of the gospel leading to regeneration and progressive sanctification. This is the only methodology that takes into account the totality of the biblical anthropology and is consistent with it. This is the only methodology that's consistent with a biblical anthropology. It takes into account the fact that man is in the image of God and must be approached by a ministry of the word that addresses all aspects of his being. It takes into account the fact that the heart must be changed before any real change um, can occur. So regeneration is necessary in the counseling task. It takes into account that believers are those who fight against the, the flesh, the world, and the devil, and you can only do that by means of progressive sanctification. It is the, it takes into account the fact that only God defines the goal of all change. Right? Um, you've all heard of Jay Adams, I assume. <laughs> Jay Adams is the granddaddy of the biblical counseling movement. And he was, um, and I remember this because I was in college when he started make, splashing and making all the ripples he started to make. But, um, these, this international convention of, of psychologists and psychiatrists or something like that was meeting in Vienna, the very heart of modern psychology. And they asked him to come and speak. Now, if you know Jay, Jay had a spine of steel. The guy was unbelievable in the way that he would just say it like it is. So he stands up before this entire international meeting of all these brainiacs in psychology and psychiatry. And here's what he tells them. You know what? You don't have any idea where you're taking your people. You don't know where you're taking them. I do. We Christians do. We know what they're supposed to be like. You don't have a clue. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there was another time, because he really, really started having an effect. There was another time when this... Convention of integrationist psychologists. And, okay, integrationists now invite him and they're going to give him an award for the influence he's had in the counseling world. You know what he does? He gets up there, he accepts the award, and then he turns around and says to them, you guys need to repent. You know, after they give him the award, he tells them, you need to repent and start doing it right. Oh, the guy was amazing. Amazing guy. But God, it takes into account the fact that only God defines the goal of all change. Um, Richard Gans in his book, um, oh, Psychobabble, talks about the fact, now he's a Jewish guy, and this is before he was converted, and he was converted through Francis Schaeffer, and he was reading Isaiah 53. But he read this one thing where it, this, it said the fruit of the, it was, it was the passage on the fruit of the spirits, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And he read through that before he's converted and he goes, wow, that's what, that's what we should be striving for. And the reference, he goes, who is this gal? <laughs> right? You know, Galatians G-A-L period. Who is this gal and where'd she get this? All right. It's the only methodology that adequately takes into account man's environment and how he should respond to it. All right. 
Man's environment is corrupted. It produces suffering. How do you respond in suffering? It also says that even the horrible things of life are part of the plan and purpose of an all-loving, wise, sovereign God. And I can see my the environment I'm living in, the things that are going on in that light as well. Okay? So, a biblical... And lastly... A biblical anthropology sets the discussion of human life and its problems within the proper framework of creation, fall, redemption, and providence. It should also have consummation at the end or glorification at the end. I left that out. Now look, you cannot, you will not come close to understanding human beings without those categories right there. Unless you have those categories, you will never understand human beings adequately. So biblical anthropology um, sets the discussion of human life within that framework. All right? So, what can we say? If you really want to understand people, then you must understand the Scriptures. I had a friend of mine once put it this way. And his name is Dave Guess. I'll give proper credit to Dave. We have too many people with a PhD in psychology and a Sunday school certificate in theology telling us how to change. That's good. You need to understand the scriptures. You must understand the scripture because it is the only infallible source for constructing a complete anthropology. A complete one. You don't need any outside sources to complete the picture. And then lastly, because Scripture provides a complete anthropology, it also gives us a complete theory of counseling and a sufficient methodology. Okay?